Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Join today. He's the founder of First Root, entrepreneur, author, keynote speaker, and former figure skater. It's Luke Coleman. How are you doing today, Luke? Good. How are you doing today, Alex? Doing good. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Okay. Uh, I grew up in a relatively small town outside of Buffalo, New York, North Tonawanda, New York. And it is uh, a funny place because there's four Tonawandas. There's North Tonawanda, Town of Tonawanda, City of Tonawanda, <laughs> Tonawanda. And we all like had this little rivalry among each other. I grew up uh, where it's pretty cold, um, just on the edge of the snow belt. And so that's the part of the U.S. where the warm, I'm sorry, the cold winter air that's dry goes over the Great Lakes, picks up moisture, hits the land, uh, and freezes. And then the, it releases the moisture with boatloads of snow. So we have just tons and tons of snow where I grew up. Uh, and then as you mentioned, I was a figure skater. So just progressing really quickly. I They built a skating rink near my home when I was 11. And uh, I started skating. I'm the youngest of uh, six kids. And all my brothers and sisters played basketball. So I wanted my own sport and it was really fun to be on ice. It's kind of hard to explain, but the feeling of gliding was really cool. I kept going. Now there's my first challenge because I wasn't initially very good. And my first coach kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, I don't think this is your sport, maybe baseball. baseball." So then I found a second coach and my second coach pulled me aside and said, you know, I don't think you're very good. And so I kept on finding coaches and kept on at it. And I actually uh, eventually became a uh, national champion uh, for the United States. And I was on the international team. So uh, it, one of those lessons is, is, is you do have to keep at things and sometimes it takes a while. So along the way, I had moved to Michigan because Michigan's one of the training centers for figure skating in the United States. And I moved to Michigan when I was 20, full-time skater, part-time employee at Electronic Data Systems, which was Ross Perot's company, roll that forward a decade, um, stopped skating, started working full-time, went back to working full-time to go to the University of Michigan, where I picked up a bachelor's degree in computer engineering and a master's degree in computer science, uh, kept working for EDS, moved to Dallas, and uh, then I was a 30. Uh, lived in Dallas for a few years, joined my first startup, uh, then eventually got uh, seduced, if you will, by the all the awesome stuff that was happening in the dot-com era. So I moved to Silicon Valley in 1996, joined a dot-com company, uh, and I've stayed here ever since. Um, that's where I met my wife, and I have my kids, and my house, and my family. Moving forward... Uh, that dot com company uh, got sold uh, or got acquired, which was fine. And then I joined another dot com and that one got acquired. And then eventually I started on my own. And I've been on my own in various companies that I've founded since 2003. Uh, the most uh, recent company before First Root was a company called Contenio. And it built enterprise collaboration software. We bootstrapped that company. And after nine years, we ended up selling it. So I, you can start to see a theme of starting something and kind of going to, to the end and then finding a way to close it and then uh, going to the next thing. And now the, 
the next thing, which is the current thing is First Root, which is a company that is designed to help improve financial literacy and civic engagement in kids. So we're going to go right back to the beginning. You mentioned earlier that you said you needed to find a sport that is yours. Why did you feel that way? Well, I think it's fairly common for kids in larger families to want to try and carve out a place that's unique for them. I can, and, and I have no experience, right? Cause I, ha- I'm one of six. So I, it's not like I have experience of an only child, mm-hmm. but I can imagine if you're an only child, you feel unique by definition, you're the only child. And even if there's only two kids, it's probably easier to feel special or different. Um, but when you're the youngest of six, And everyone else is playing basketball and everyone else is older, which means they're bigger than you. So basketball wasn't fun. Like all my brothers and sisters like, oh, it's this really fun thing. And I'd be like, oh, you just crush me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm 11 and you are 17 and you're a foot taller and way stronger and way faster. And so um, I don't think there's like any deep psychology here. I just think it's a desire for every human to feel unique everyone wants to feel special at work at home you, you, you don't want to feel like you're a number at work you want to feel that you're recognized and unique and, and special having those differences where you didn't enjoy basketball did it kind of hurt the bond that you had with your other siblings or were you able to find other things that you guys all enjoyed and the bond was there they were very supportive of my skating so they, the, the bond was actually there. I don't think it was like this bond for skating, but it wasn't so much me being antagonistic about, uh, about this desire to be different, but they were really supportive. Um, uh, I will add to the story, which really does change things quite a bit is my father died when I was four. So my mom raised six kids on her own. And she was not wealthy. We were not a wealthy family. We were poor. And so there's this, there's, there's already an intrinsic sense of kind of, we're not going to fight each other because things are already so hard for our family to survive. So we all worked jobs growing up. As near as I can tell, we all worked at least one job. I worked two. Um, I know my one sister worked two jobs. So we were supportive of each other through the through the situation that kind of life had dealt us um now i don't want any listener to feel like oh woe is me or it's horrible uh because i don't we don't perceive it that way it's more of um certain things happen in your life and yeah they kind of stink um but how do you respond to that how do you how do you deal with that and and i think overall i've had a great life um uh i i i have you know, four kids that are great. I have a, a, a stable marriage. I have a house in Sunnyvale, California. It's, it's a great place to live. So we have great friends. I mean, so I feel, um, I don't want to say blessed because I'm not a religious person, but I feel that um, uh, I'm, I'm much more a forward posture, much more of an optimist uh, 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 than a pessimist. <laughs> 
when you first got out on the ice, were there a lot of nerves for you or coming from being in New York, kind of in that kind of cold setting, it was kind of natural and maybe it wasn't a problem at first. Well, I think the first time you do anything, there's nervousness. Um, now, when you're 11 years old and you put on skates the first time, you're not any good. You're just standing there and kind of yeah. walking. But then you kind of glide. I mean, that's not like I was good at first because I wasn't. Um, but there's this, this, this feeling. It's hard to explain. Uh, there's this feeling of gliding that it, it, it's, it's kind of like, how do you explain balance when you're riding your bicycle? You, you know it when you feel it and you're on the bike. And if you've ridden a bicycle, I'm going to assume you have. You yeah. also know that it's it, it's one of those curious physical acts where you're you're more stable and safer if you go faster. Mm-hmm. So what's cool about skating is you can go really fast, and I do like the speed aspect. Not that I've had a few speeding tickets in my life, <laughs> <laughs> but but um, I would say that the first competitions I competed in, you're super nervous, and the only way to get past those nerves for most people is to just do it. It, it. It's not something that gets better by not doing it, right? Yeah. It's something that gets better by doing it. Uh, I've written four books and I think my most well-written book is my third book. I think the other two books have fantastic content, but the writing that I write now and the writing I wrote 20 years ago, there I found my voice. I've I, I have a way of communicating that's more who I am as a person. I mean, compare your first podcast to this podcast. You're a better host. Oh, I I actually had a conversation about that with a friend of mine. And I was comparing like when I first did it, especially the video format, where my first interview and then how I was now, and it's completely like grown, like skill set has grown, like learning new things. And I just love that. And it sounds like the same way when you were writing or even like your first competition to your late last competition, you've grown so much. Well, you also got older during those times also, but you were learning so much that you were taking each skill and uh, incorporating it in some way. And I've had some coaches who gave me some great advice. Um, uh, one of my, my best coach was uh, a guy named Johnny Johns. It's actually his name, Johnny Jones. <laughs> but I remember one time I was, I don't know why I was feeling a little nervous. He's like, how are you doing? Are you ready? And I'm like, I don't know, Johnny, I feel a little nervous. He goes, well, let's, let's actually dig into that. He said, here are reasons to be nervous. Reasons to be nervous are you're hurt. And so you're nervous about how you're going to behave or if you're going to hurt more, if it's going to hurt, like physically hurt, or you're not trained or we're asking you to do tricks that are beyond your skill level. He said, so let's check it. And by the way, sometimes you are hurt when you're an athlete and you do perform physically hurt. A lot of athletes do. And in this particular competition, I was completely healthy. He said, so you're not, you are completely healthy. So we can take that off the list. He said, you're completely well-trained. You can do this run through, you, you understand it. And there's not a trick in this run through that you can't do. There's harder tricks but you can do them all. You do them in practice. You do them consistently. So tell me why you're nervous. I said, I guess I'm not really nervous, but I feel a little nervous. He said, Oh, that could be good nerves, right? Like you're excited to perform, right? Like, like 
I look at you right now and you're very calm. You're, you have that relaxed shoulder. You're, you've got that calmness to you. you. You have a great presence, but it's because you're prepared and you know how to do this. And, and, but you're still like me, I'm excited to talk to you. And I'm, I know you're excited to talk to me. So it's, there's this energy that's happening. I totally agree. And it's kind of, I liked how your coach kind of took each step that it, possibilities of what it could be, but then sat down and went through each one instead of a coach just throwing you out there and not having that discussion. It kind of just shows that that coach cared because you mentioned two coaches earlier um, as we were talking, how they said, oh, I don't think this is right for you, but they didn't take the time to actually get you to where they're not saying that anymore. That's right. And, and uh, about maybe half a year later, there was a competition and I was injured and I remember standing to go on and I said, Johnny's like, how you doing? I'm like, well, remember a few months ago, I'm hurt. <laughs> and, and I had hurt my inner thigh muscle, my groin muscle, which is actually a very bad muscle to hurt for skating because it it's the muscle that pulls your legs together, which you do when you're spinning or when you're jumping to get a rotational force. I said, Johnny, I pulled my, my inner thigh muscle. It's, it's not good. He goes, yeah. He goes, do your best because it's going <laughs> to hurt. Now, the good news is when you're done, you don't have to compete again for a whole month. So we'll have time to heal. Do your best. And it's going to hurt. And, and, and that actually helped me because he's like, don't, don't, don't kid yourself. Like he was a very, um, a realism based, like mm-hmm. he, he, he didn't promote you more than you should be. He didn't tear you down. Uh, but when things like that were happening, he was brutal honesty. Just, yeah, this is going to hurt. Do it. Do you have a favorite trick that you ever did? Or like one that stands out to you? Something that you thought, oh, I'm never going to learn that or know how to do this, but you ended up doing it? Yeah, I. there, there were two. Um, as a single skater, because part of pairs is being single and, and keep in mind that I am not the skill level that you see today. Like today they're doing quadruple flips, <laughs> yeah. right? In, in my day, it was double and triple flips that were like the pinnacle. Um, but it was a very, very hard jump for me to learn. And, and at one point I didn't know I would learn it. And I remember I, when I finally acquired the skill to do a double flip, um, I never lost it. And that was a personal accomplishment as a pair skater. The, uh, the, some of the tricks in pairs that were, I remember being really proud that I could do was uh, a one-handed overhead press, uh, which was physically very demanding because you're turning and you got to grow up overhead. And then, uh, uh, not that I would expect you to know this, but something called a split triple twist. Um, <laughs> right. So when you watch pairs now, they all kind of open with the same element. They skate around a little bit and then they go in and the guy chucks the girl. She, she spins three times and you catch her and you set her down. Well, it, in my day, 20 years ago, that was today. Everyone does it. But when, again, when our team was doing, it, it was considered fairly unique and, uh, very hard. And it was one of those world-class tricks. And so we were really proud that we had a good one. I mean, we had a really good one. Um, so yeah, but I mean, it's, it's kind of like all of the tricks were fun. I mean, you know, they, it's, it's just a fun sport. <laughs> the only trick I can name is triple axel. Cause you just hear it so many times. And at the time of this recording, they've been having the U S Olympic 
uh, figure skating on right now or the fig, the U S championship. And that's right. My mom was watching it when I went over to her house and I'm like, are these even names of actual tricks? Cause I feel like they just put a bunch of names together. Or oh no, they're together. actually names of they're named after people who invented them. Okay. It makes it now. It makes so Axel. The Axel was named after Axel Paulsen, a Swedish guy who invented it. Um, hundreds of, you know, not hundreds of years ago, but more than a hundred years ago. And that's when the blades were different. And so it was a big deal that you could do an axle named after Axel Paulson and Ulrich Salkow created the Salkow. So you hear like, oh, they're doing a quadruple Salkow. Well, it's actually <laughs> named after a person. Um, the Lutz is named after a, a dude named Lutz. Um, the flip and the loop, I don't think they're named after people, um, but they're named after the movement you make in the air. Um, but yeah, the, the triple axle is actually named after a person. <laughs> See, this uh, this is why I'm learning something new today. <laughs> Looking at from your time to what's going on now, like emotions, expressions, showboat, not showboating in a bad way, but like the expressions, the outfits, the kind of the glamour of the sport. Was that popular back then? Or do you think over time with how like style, fashion, pop, social media, pop culture has become, it's bigger now. I don't think the um, sequins and and stuff like that is any different. I mean, skating has always been a sport that, you know, we love sequins. Um, I think the there's two, I, well, there's actually three really big changes from when I was there. Um, the first is now the music can have words which is mm-hmm. a big deal. And I think it opens the expression and I think sometimes it, it works better and sometimes it's awful. Um, the second is the rules have changed. So physical moves that were actually um, uh, illegal to do when I was skating, because they were considered to be too dangerous are now allowed, um, which is what you don't see is the practice. The practices can be pretty brutal, especially in pairs on the girls. Uh, and you're chucking a person around 15 feet, you know, five feet in the yeah. air and they fall and it hurts. And uh, uh, so I, as in terms of toughness, I will put a pairs figure skating woman against any athlete in the world in terms of just being physically tough. They're as physically tough as anyone in the world. Um, And then I think the third thing is now you can have sponsors, um, which are effectively a payment. And when I was skating to be an amateur, you couldn't accept any kind of payment, which meant that a lot of skaters were really very poor athletes. I didn't have a lot of money. We did it. It was, it was kind of a rich person sport. But I like that because I believe it's opened up the sport for more people to be included, because if you're good, you can find a sponsor and it's not a function of your economic background. It's a function of your skill level, which is what we would prefer. And and I think that those lessons have carried me throughout my entire life as much as possible. And I don't care you know, if you're male or female or tall or short or with the color of your skin or your religious preference, whatever preference you have. Um, as a leader in companies, I just look for people who are performance based. And I think that because um, you haven't asked me, but sometimes some, sometimes people will say, well, you put all this money into skating. When did you get out of it? You, you didn't get money back. And I'm like, well, no, but you shouldn't do everything you, in your life for money. And second, um, 
I got a lot about how to live a life and how to run a business and how to be disciplined and how to be consistent and how to be reliable uh, that, that I think are, is critical. And so I'm a huge fan of some form of physical activity and sport for, for kids. I think anything you do, it, you can always take some kind of skill set from it and utilize it in other areas. Cause you kind of mentioned that you learned about business and stuff through skating, but you were able to take that into what you do now, even though it's completely two different sectors, basically. Right. That's right. And that's the best part because like if you're in business, but you like to sing, there's something that you can find in both that a skill is utilized and you just got to find it. In well, in musicianship, especially if you're a singer, um, unless you're completely alone, you're in a band and a band yep. is a collaborative activity. A where it's a team and, and you're, you, you know, you, you see it where, those bands are like jazz or whatever. They kind of look at each other and they're giving each other uh, information and they're signaling the flow of the song and the energy. And what we do as an audience is we're part of that, right? It's not that there's the band without an audience. We're part of that energy. Yep. We're, we're, we're giving the band something and the band is giving us something. And it's this kind of dynamic, wonderful thing. So I absolutely see those relationships to, what we do and in terms of work, if I'm a singer, yeah, it, it, it plays over. What would you say is your favorite accomplishment from your skating career? Oh, that's easy. Uh, winning the national championship. I mean, that's that uh, there's two levels, a junior level and a senior level. And I won the junior level and then I moved up to senior, but for sure, it's pretty special to say that you've been the best in the United States at a given level once mm -hmm. in your life. That that's pretty cool. Um, I'd say the other uh, accomplishment is, um, well, I, th there's really it. I mean, that that's really the, the single accomplishment that, that I remember and, and I'm, I'm very proud of it was a lot of those years of work and a lot of, you know, not always easy, right? Knee surgeries and broken bones and stuff like that. But it, it's, it's, it, it was worth it. <laughs> Talk about that transition from going away from figure skating and now changing your career path. Did you kind of have to say, I need to retire from this, or I don't think I can do this any longer? Or were you ready for that next step in your life? That is an insightful uh, question. Um, uh, speaking completely candidly, I wasn't ready for that transition. And it was one of the hardest parts of my entire life by far. Um, I wasn't expecting it to go this deep and this personal, but well, let's go there. When I was in my last year of skating, I had a partner, a very nice partner. Um, and we were going to skate together one more year. And then I was going to retire. I was going to be 24. And my partner at the time was very, very skilled. And she was young enough to keep going. And so the idea that I had with Johnny was that I was going to continue uh, for one more year, have like this kind of ending state. Uh, my partner would move forward and uh, it didn't turn out that way. My partner's um, mother decided that she didn't want her daughter skating anymore and just stopped. Oh, put my partner in a tailspin. And then I had no partner to skate with. So now I'm 24. I'm working part-time for electronic data systems. 
And I had a, uh, I didn't, I wasn't sure what to do. Well, while that happened, my boss at EDS came to me and gave me this great opportunity. He's like, here's this great opportunity, but you're going to have to work full time to, to take this opportunity. And so I made that transition very, very quickly. Um, and I wasn't ready for it. And so it was a very difficult time in my life. Uh, uh, to be uh, candid, I don't actually remember it. I mean, it was like kind of so traumatic. I don't actually remember that it was blurry. I, I know I worked, I wasn't skating. I was teaching aerobics at the time to, to maintain my fitness. And uh, um, I, uh, side story, I told you I had pulled my groin muscle. The doctor prescribed taking aerobics classes <laughs> to help me fix my muscle. That's interesting. So it was part of my physical therapy. And then I got good at it. And then they, they said, hey, you're a man, you're teaching aerobics how about we pay you? And I'm like, okay. And of course there's lots of pretty girls in an aerobics class. And when you're a young man, <laughs> to be candid, right? When you're a young man, there's a lot of pretty girls in an aerobics class. And so you're thinking this isn't so bad. Um, and, and that was fun. Um, uh, and indeed I met my wife in an, in an aerobics studio. She was, a, I walked into a class and I took one look at my wife and I said, that's, I think the one literally <laughs> one look and we've been married now 23 years. Wow. Um, so, um, so I wasn't ready for that transition. It was a more abrupt than it should have been. And fortunately my strength and optimism, because I, I'm always, I self-identify as an optimist. I do believe in the power of people. I do believe in the power of our future. I will be the first to say we've got horrible challenges that we're facing in humanity and our country in the United States. You know, we have a dysfunctional political system. We have a dysfunctional um, Congress. Uh, there, there's, there's lots of things that are wrong. And yet I'm still optimistic. I'm, I'm, uh, we've gotten through problems in the past. And so what happened was is over time, uh, healing occurs if you let it and then new friendships form. I had got friendships at work. I had this great opportunity at electronic data systems, EDS, and it just kind of led one thing to another and, and it all worked out. Um, but yeah, that transition transitions are hard for every person. Uh, there's lots of life transitions. Um, um, my wife and I are going through a transition now. Uh, we have four kids, two are in college, and I have a senior in high school and a junior in high school. So the third will be going to college. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth. So this is a big transition. It's exciting. I'm so optimistic. I love hearing what my kids are going to college for. I love what they're studying. I love like, oh, you're interested in this. That's interesting. Um, but it is a big transition. When you went from EDS to the dot-com to first root, were each of the paths kind of generated through the previous experience and you kind of were looking at wanting more and wanting to be intrigued by that next step? Somewhat yes and somewhat no. So when I stopped skating and I was at Electronic Data Systems, I wanted to... Um, and I'm not expecting you to know this, but EDS at the time was 
kind of like as the a massively big company, you know, 100,000 employees, billions in revenue, but they did mainframes. So it's okay. the mid it's the mid 80s. It's it's it, and PCs are just coming on board. This is IBM PCs with DOS operating system from Microsoft. And it was super exciting for a young person like me. And so I'm working at this company that's got mainframe computers. And I mean, the internet doesn't exist at, at this point. And so I remember going to the leadership and saying, look, I want to do these really cool things with, with personal computers. And they're like, yeah, we just don't do that at EDS. And then one of those really wise people at EDS, and, and I would say I have been blessed by people who have shared advice with me or experiences with me and belief in me. Now, well, I'm going to come back to that. Um, but he pulls me aside. He's like, look, you can stay at EDS. You'll have a good career and you may or may not get to do PCs. But if you really want to do PCs, like I really wanted to do mainframes, then you're going to have to leave EDS and find a company that is doing that work. And that was a very different kind of transition than skating because it wasn't pulled from me. There was a possibility being created for me. Mm -hmm. And then I remember um, thinking about it for a couple of weeks and I'm like, you know, I'm going to leave. And I went back and I gave my letter of resignation and it was super, um, um, uh, they were, they were incredibly gracious. They understood. um, uh, I, the, my boss that I had at EDS, I'm still friends with, he's, he's much older and he's, he's in his, you know, last days of his life, I think over the next couple of years, but I still talk with him. Right. And I think that that's something else that happens is believing in other people is really important because people have believed in me. Remember, we, I said I had these two skating coaches that told me I wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. And then I go to Johnny and he's and I remember my very first meeting with Johnny. He's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to go to nationals. I didn't say I want to win nationals. I, I want to go. And he's like, yeah, I think you can do that. And I remember just him saying, yeah, I think you can do that. Now you're going to have to do this and this is. But that belief in someone else is magic. And I've had times in my career. And um, so to maintain my fitness, I still you know, work out and I go for runs. And when I feel down, I do what I call a gratitude run. And what I do in a gratitude run is I don't, you know, I never run with iPhones or iPods or things like that. I want to be with myself. But a gratitude run is a specific run where I reflect on people who've helped me so I can be of gratitude to them. And I always feel better after a gratitude run. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. I like that. I think that's something that I think people that are listening can definitely incorporate in their life. And when you talked about those people that believed in you and I'm at that age where I'm kind of starting in my career and I get that those same people or people in my industry that have that, like, we can see you going so far and it's just belief and having positivity around. But then I always look at those people that put negative and I'm like, always trying to prove them wrong. Like your, your hate's not going to get to me. You're going to make me want to keep going and keep going farther and farther. But I believe that everyone should be 
spreading that positivity to their coworkers or their from bosses to colleagues and things like that, because it makes people want to work even harder. And like your coach did that same thing. He had that belief that you would go to nationals and he put in that work with you for that. And you did. Yeah, and, but to be human, right. I also every now and then think of a few people I can't wait to call up and say, told you so. Right. Yeah. Um, Cause I've written a few books and, and one of my books, people were very, um, uh, very not supportive of, of the book and it became quite successful. And I was, and there were a few people when I met later on, I'm like, yeah, you told me this book wouldn't work and guess what? It's worked. And so I think that it's kind of like a ratio, right? I like to have three positives to kind of neutralize that one negative, Mm -hmm. but I don't deny the fact that there are times when people say that snide remark to someone or do that thing. That's not very good. And it can provide a little fuel to fire. Uh, you know, of, of wanting to compete or wanting to be great. But most of the time, I think it's the positivity and it's the gratitude that that has the biggest impact. You mentioned that you are now residing in California. And if we look at your world, your map trail travel that you've done, you went from New York to Michigan to Dallas to now California. Is there do you miss kind of going to those cold areas or do you prefer the life that you have or like the warmness i mean it doesn't even snow in california except there's people think that it has snowed and it hasn't but do you kind of miss the cold no no i don't you prefer the west coast i do i um i i love the temperate climate of where i live i mean of course in california we wish we had a little bit more water um it's yeah with the drought but i really do love the temperate climate um i'm my home doesn't even have air conditioning Right. I mean, there's, wow. there's right. Like, wow. Like, like, yeah, there's a couple of weeks in the summer where we, we might feel a little hot. So we, you know, it's a little uncomfortable, but uh, we, I really do love the temperate climate. Now I, through my work over my career, I have traveled a lot. I've got more than uh, a few million miles on American airlines. <laughs> so, so I've, had the opportunity to, you know, Mexico and Colombia and Sydney, Australia and Pune, India and Tel Aviv and, you know, all sorts of places around the world. And they all have their positives, right? Um, But when I'm in those colder areas, um, you know, being in um, Gothenburg, Sweden um, in the winter is very cold. And so, so I'm very comfortable um, in California and uh, I, I quite like it. I mean, Midwest, you just never know what's going to happen. Like, I think we had the warmest December ever. And I told someone, I go, we're going to get it hit right back to us when January hits. And it has been that. And then today it's been like the fifties, I believe. And I'm like, this is crazy, but I I'm a summer guy or like the Florida, the beach kind of person. So (laughs) those are like my places I have to travel. I'm like, I have to get out of the cold and I need to go somewhere warm at all costs. For someone that's listening to this interview that doesn't know what first route is about, what if you could summarize what you do and what is that main message you're trying to tell people? Yeah. The main message is simple. We teach kids how to manage money by giving them money to manage. Okay. 
That's it's that simple. Now, there's a lot to unpack around it because yeah. you're like, wait a minute, do you just walk up to a school and give them money? <laughs> and like, how does that work? And and the answer is yes, but we don't give them money and walk away. We give them money and show them how to think about money and show them how to be responsible with money. So the process is known as participatory budgeting. And all participatory budgeting is, is it says, look, when there's a shared economic decision, a group of people should learn how to make it together. And it's usually a five-step process, and we call it 5DPB. So for 5D is in the letter D, uh, and I'll go through each stage real quickly. The first phase or stage is discovery. The students go out. They talk with other students, they talk with teachers, and they discover problems and opportunities in their school. So let's say the discovery process is, you know, we just feel like a lot of kids don't like our athletic equipment, or a lot of kids wish we had more school spirit. And we we felt like COVID really hurt our school spirit. The next phase is dream. They just create ideas like, oh, what could we do with school spirit? I don't know. We could have a dance. We could paint a mural. We could do a a day of, uh, we could have a silly clothing day. Then from the dream phase, they take those proposals and they actually decide which ones are worthy and can be completed in the budget that they have. I'll come back to the budget in a second. And they go through a design thinking process. So maybe the idea of the mural gets through the initial phase. And so now you have to ask a lot of questions like, well, who's going to design the mural and who's going to approve the mural and where are you going to put the mural? And is it, is it inside or outside? Because now I got to get the right paint. And the unique part about this, Alex, is that we make the kids do the work. It's not the teachers. It's not the parents. It's like, look, if you want a mural, you got to figure this out. Then the next phase is decide. They take the proposals that they've developed and they put them into a voting ballot and the school votes. The final phase is due. The winning items are actually funded and they're put in place. So it goes from discover, dream, to decide, I'm sorry, design, decide, and then do. And that process takes about two to three months. The amount of money that is usually associated with the program is between $2,000 and $10,000. It's enough money for the kids to do something meaningful. And it's not so much money that adults are going to come in and take over. Mm -hmm. So we don't want the adults taking over anything. We want the kids in control. So if I walked up to the school and said, hey, the kids have a million bucks, you know, the parents are going to be like, hey, we better tell them how to spend it. Yeah. So, so we don't want that. Um, and uh, the kids do amazing things. Uh, uh, we were working with an elementary school in Madison, Wisconsin. The kids decided to get a tree. They got some soccer nets. They got some fidget toys. Uh, we worked with a uh, high school here in Sunnyvale. The kids got a display case for flyers because they were tired of the flyers that we, they would put up littering the campus. Mm-hmm. They didn't want as much littering. They got more outside seating for where their uh, lunch area is. One school converted a drinking fountain into an LK water bottle refilling station to be more green. Yeah. Um, 
so so when you just kind of look at what the kids do, they buy band equipment, they buy 3D printers, um, they add chemistry equipment. They they sometimes they throw a party. That's okay. They needed a a way to socialize. Um, uh, they some kids one one project they bought some fidget toys and they were in elementary school. Okay, the point is is that they are in control now. There's so much to unpack about this because we're learning civics and we're showing them what voting processes look like. We're showing them the reality of not everything that you want to buy or everything you want to do can be done. We recently in the United States had an election where we had the first disruption in the peaceful transition of power in our entire history. So we have a process where we talk about ratification of voting results and what does it mean to accept the results of a vote. Uh, we, uh, on the financial literacy side, we talk about total cost of ownership. Um, the, the soccer nets, total cost of ownership is buying the nets. However, if you want to get a guitar, you might have to include an amplifier. You might have to include a carrying case because if it's part of the band, so we talk about the total cost of ownership. We talk about um, how sometimes you'll choose an item that benefits a subset of the school as opposed to everyone in the school equally. That can be okay, because that's how democracies work. That's how communities work. Um, We talk a lot about design thinking, what's desirable, what's viable, what's feasible. Uh, You know, and you get... You get silly ideas. They're kids. That's okay. So, you know, in one project we did, the kids for a while were were saying, let's get a duck pond. And we just let it run. <laughs> and then after about a month, one of the kids said, hey, the adults really aren't upset that we want a duck pond, but can we actually really afford it? So they actually went through all the details and they couldn't afford it with the budget that they had one, one kid, one school wanted to put a uh, pool of jelly bellies and the teacher just went with it. And they said, okay, if you want a pool of jelly bellies, how much, and we have a pool, how many jelly bellies do you need? So it turned into a math problem, (laughs) right. Of, you know, calculating the volume of the pool, calculating how many jelly bellies there are in, you know, the ounce. And then it turned into first, how many jelly bellies do you need a volume problem? Then it turned into a structural problem. Like do jelly bellies weigh more or less than water? Because the pool has water. And so what if it weighed twice as much as water? So this teacher was really brilliant. And they just kept on like, hey, if you want to be silly, let's talk about it. But they wove in math. And when you're looking at learning systems and learning styles, the the approach that we're talking about is what is called project-based learning. So rather than following the stupid, and I'm going to say stupid examples in textbooks, you know, Ming and Joe want to go to the store to buy apples. They have $23 and apples are $1.99 a pound. How many apples can they buy? I mean, come on. And you're thinking, are they even hungry? And why pick apples over, I mean, (laughs) over oranges, right? I mean, these are student generated ideas. And I don't want to get into too much of the technology of of teaching, but it's it's also called an authentic question. Rather than giving the student a, a, a stupid, goofy word problem, 
they you're running with their energy. Hey, you want to get a 3D printer? Okay. Let's think about quality. Let's think about total cost of ownership. Let's think about supplies. Let's think about where you're going to put it. Let's think about the heating power requirements. And, and these kids figure it out because they want to. It's their money and they know it's real money. So that's the gist of First Root. And uh, we're having a, a, a blast doing it. I think you're teaching them so many different skill set, but I think when I'm hearing everything, the biggest thing I, I think that's huge is the value of money in a way. Yes. Because I think depending on what area you go in, a California kid might think a lot different than a kid on the East Coast, but you're showing them that everything doesn't grow on trees and that you may not have enough money for and I only use this because TV shows that I've watched, like, oh, the kid wants a new Jaguar car and daddy pays for it and they don't earn it. They don't see how did, how did their dad get that car? What did he have to do behind the scenes to get the car for the kid or for the child? And I think what you guys are doing is take them each step and they're going to take those steps when they get older and they're going to analyze okay, I want to go on this trip. How do I get this trip? How many hours? It's a lot of analyzing analytics. And I love that because it's real life skills. And we kind of talked about it earlier where anything you do, you can learn something that can correlate to something else you do. And I think this project that you guys are creating is going to take, they're going to take those skills and take it to future things that they do. Absolutely. And, and also, the good thing about humans is that our imagination is unbounded. The, the reality though, is our resources are bounded. Yep. And it doesn't matter if you're a a single person, if you're a family, if you're a company, if you're a city, if you're a country, everyone has, you know, these many great ideas, if not more and this much money. And so we often think of the mindset of scarcity. I don't have enough money to do what I want. And I always reverse that. I always say it's actually a problem of abundance, not scarcity. You've got so many great ideas. It's hard to pick, but let's pick the ideas that are the best ideas and let's learn that process. And in reality, the best way to do that is to have a conversation with other people. And through that process, you're talking about, well, what do we want in the school and why do we want it? And what's important and good about it. And um, what we do as a company is, we have a fantastic software platform that the kids love. Uh, It runs on any device. So it doesn't matter if it's Chromebook or tablet or Android phone or iPhone or Mac or PC, that doesn't matter. We run on anything. Um, So my, so my unique skill in the world is I build good software (laughs) and I build good software teams and I know how to build really reliable software systems. So the kids love our software. It's super easy to use. It, it supports them in the process so they can focus on the process. The teachers really enjoy the software because again, it makes it easy to go through the program and they can focus on the lessons that they want to teach the kids. We provide teachers with a curriculum in finance and a curriculum in civics, but we built it so that you can tailor it. So Mm -hmm. it's not like here's our curriculum and it's a PDF and you have to, it's like, no, here's our curriculum It's a Google Doc. You can download it. You can teach it as is. You can tailor it to your kids' needs. If you're 
in a special community or if you're in a special context or if you don't like the sequencing that we provided and you want to sequence it in your own way, here you go. And the teachers love that. They what one of the things we found with teachers is they hate they hate two things. They hate it's it's like Goldilocks, right? They hate it when no one helps them out and they hate it when what they're given is completely locked and they can't change it. What they want is that middle of I've got something that's going to help me get started. And if I feel I need to, I can adjust it. I can change it. I can tune it to my kids because I know my kids better than anyone. And they do. Yeah. What does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish personally and professionally in the next few years? Let's go professionally because I think that that feeds into the personal side. So I I'm going to take you on a little bit of an optimistic journey here, Alex. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Now, I give $10,000 to a school. They can do some nice things, right? Yep. But they can't have an incredibly big impact because it's $10,000. Now, I'm going to use California and I'm going to use Florida because those are two states that are populous enough that you can kind of see where we're after. In California, there's 3,200 high schools. In Florida, there's 2,400. Now, what I know how to do from my last company is I know how to build global cross-collaborative software. That was what I did in my last company for major enterprises. So now take those skills, but apply them to schools and make the unit of collaboration, the schools and the kids within the schools. 3,200 high schools in California is $30 million. What do you think kids in California would do if they had $30 million under their disposal? What would kids in Florida do if they had $24 million in their disposal? I keep going. There's 100,000 schools in America. What would our kids do if they had a billion dollars under their control, what would they spend it on? What would changes would they make? And it's kind of like, I literally don't know. And I want to find out. I want to, I want to build this because I think they're going to do great things. I'm going to think they're going to learn those things. And I think they're going to be the future of restoring our society. Now, let, let me go to the serious side. We have to restore our society. Every study is showing a decline in the trust and the relationship between citizens and democracy, not in the United States, in every democracy around the world. Every single trend line is negative. Millennials right now, one in four millennials believe that democracy is a bad way to run the country. One in four. And one of the big root causes of that is um, Facebook and the, misinser- and the misinformation on social media and, and, and the, the desire to create divides because Facebook makes more money when we're fighting as opposed to when we're coming together. So I'm putting a stake in the ground and I'm saying people in Silicon Valley can design tech that's healthy, that contributes to relationships as opposed to tears them apart that shows people what happens when real money is put in the hands of people. And so professionally, I want to create a legacy that is a provable alternative 
to the divisive social media that's making money through advertising. Because an advertising platform is selling a person to an advertiser. Let's know what, you know what's being sold. It's a person to an advertiser. That can be very harmful. Now, most, sometimes it's fine, right? But sometimes it's really harmful. Now, personally, if I wanted to be known for anything, it would be I've had a stable marriage, I've raised a nice family, and I've made a positive contribution to the world in which we live. Mm-hmm. Looking at what you talked about with the glo- or the world takeover that you're trying to not take over, that's probably a bad word, wanting to hit every school. Do you ever see yourself going international with it? Oh, absolutely. Um, the, our, we have what we call a BHAG, which is a big, hairy, audacious goal. We want to be in a million schools by 2030. And okay. since there's 100,000 schools in the U.S., we have to be global. So um, I have a global development team. I have people here in the U.S. I have people in Mexico. I have people in India. Um, we... We're all, our platform is already internationalized. So, for example, if you were logging in um, from Turkey, you'd see it in Turkish. If you were logging in from um, uh, Italy, you'd see it in Italian. You'd see the, 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 the presentation of the information in the native language that you're in or the currency that you're using, euros or uh, liras or, or um, um, shekels or whatever currency you're using, uh, yen. Um, we're... So we're, we're already global um, and you can keep going. Uh, the biggest problems that we face over the long haul are going to be cross-border collaborative problems. Things like um, water rights in the Middle East or oil rights uh, as pipelines. I mean, you know, Russia is saying we're going to go to war soon because of the pipeline in, in, in Eastern Europe. So the, the vision of I learned how to make these difficult yet collaborative decisions in school. I have graduated and now I can bring that into my society and I can then bring it into my global thinking. Um, We're not exactly sure that how that's going to be manifested in our software platform, but being global and then creating opportunities for cross global collaborative capabilities are powerful. The Rotary, uh, Rotary has done this with polio. Uh, Rotary, and I'm a Rotarian, and one of the causes of Rotary is the a Rotary, uh, a Rotary is the eradication of polio. And Rotary has made a provable, obvious, massive positive change in the world by uh, nearly eliminating polio. It's not quite out, but a horrible, horrible disease has been. Um, uh, vastly uh, reduced and is on the path to complete elimination through a global collective making a commitment. And that's hopefully what we're going to do too. We're going to have a global collective on these capabilities and, and have a similar commitment and a similar impact. The final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? It's hard to believe in yourself at times as much as we all do. I mean, that's a pretty standard piece of us. I like believe in yourself and you can overcome the challenge. Well, that can be really hard. 
And you and I both know that. Mm-hmm. So w- my piece of advice is find someone to believe in. And that creates the kind of energy in which people believe in you. So don't, don't, don't start by saying, I'm going to find someone who's going to believe in me. Find for yourself someone that you can believe in. And, and I mentor a few people. I'm, in, I'm working with um, a couple of young men right now. Um, Donovan is one. Hassan is another. I think they're amazing people. I think they're going to do amazing things. And they'll tell you that they don't think they can do these amazing things, but they're doing amazing things because I believe they can. I, I, I'm like, Donovan, I don't know if you can do this. But I have something that's more important than knowledge. I have belief. I believe you can do this. So if if you're on your journey and you're listening to this podcast, you're already enlightened enough to know a lot of the wisdom that you've already shared and people have already shared. So my wisdom that I'll add to the pool is find someone to believe in and you'll find that people will eventually believe in you too. Well, Luke, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you so much. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to the full length episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.